Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Loretta Mester is a mathematician. She has been consistent and she has been very, very articulate about uh, her views on the Fed. Of course, with Michael McKee and with Jonathan Farrell and the great precursor to what we'll hear from Jerome Powell here in about an hour. We do this with the markets churning this morning. Uh, our Jonathan Farrell with the president of the Cleveland Fed. New York City, a special welcome to our TV and radio audience worldwide. Bloomberg's Michael McKee alongside us. Happy to say, joining us both, Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester. President Mester, always fantastic to catch up with you. You know the setup right now. We've got Deutsche Bank, Citi, JP Morgan, Goldman, all calling for rate hikes in March. Some of your colleagues doing the same. What obstacles are left, if any, for making a move that soon? Well, you know, the, the economy is on a really good track. I, the inflation numbers are high. It looks now that inflation is more persistent um, going forward. Early in the pandemic, earlier, you know, in the last year, a lot of those rate, uh, price increases were really on things that were really tied to the reopening of the economy and the supply chain. Now those price increases have broadened. So if the economy in March looks like it does today and the outlook is similar, and of course, there's uncertainty around that. But if it does, then I would support moving the funds rate up at that meeting and starting to move back from some of the extraordinary accommodation we needed earlier in the pandemic. And, you know, I just want to point out that even when we make that first rate move, whenever it is, that's not really policy tightening. Uh, accommodation is still going to be really high at that point. So, you know, I, I think that the case is really strong to begin to wind back some of that accommodation. Well, that raises the question for our friends on the trading floor of uh, how far, how fast, and uh, where do you stop? Uh, Bill Dudley says you probably need to do four or five rate moves this year. You've long been an inflation hawk. How far do you think you need to go? Well, I can tell you in that December SEP submission, I had three penciled in for for this year and a few more over ne the you know next the trajectory. But I also want to point out that you know, we're going to have to see how the economy does over time before we can say for sure how many rate increases are needed. Uh, you know, th there's still a lot of uncertainty around the outlook. There's uncertainty about how the pandemic plays out. Um, as we've seen each new variant, the economy has really navigated it in terms of the economic outlook. But right now, you know, we have to say that we probably need to recalibrate our policy stance because inflation is well above where we need it to be, the employment markets, you know, labor markets are tight from the standpoint of a policy relevant framework. Do I think we'll see labor force participation move up somewhat after we get beyond the pandemic? Of course, but I don't think we can ignore the shorter run or medium run tightness in that labor market. So I think we're in a good place to move policy. And, you know, we'll have to see how that affects the economy going forward and the other factors affecting economic growth and employment going forward. 
Well, speaking of moving policy, the Fed's uh, statement of principles says that the interest rate, the Fed funds rate, should be the primary tool, but you also have a lot of bonds on the balance sheet. How does uh, quantitative tightening, to use the market term, fit into your thinking? How much would that be worth uh, in terms of uh, additional tightening, and when do you think that should be done, if at all? Yeah, so I mean, we have a little bit of a playbook from the last time, but I think this time is different in the sense that we basically have a much larger balance sheet than we did because we had to do those asset purchases at the start of the pandemic because of financial market conditions being uh, the disruption of the financial markets. We really needed to make sure that the financial markets continue to function. Now that additional liquidity is serving as a uh, accommodative uh, policy tool. Um, we also have a much stronger economy now. So, you know, I, I think we'll be able to, to allow the balance sheet to run down f much faster than we did last time because of those two factors and adjusting, you know, how far to go and how we're still considering that. But I do think that it's good to look at sort of the policy tool, the interest rate is our main tool, but to take into account that we also are going to allow the balance sheet um, to, to, to run down. I mean, we doubled the balance sheet over this pandemic period, and I think we can bring it down um, also to support less accommodative uh, monetary policy stance. And we'll have to see. I mean, frankly, there's a lot of estimates out there of what happened the last time we did quantitative you know, easing and then tightening. But the pandemic is a different environment, as we've seen the whole time, right? I mean, yeah. who... You know, we just don't know kind of what those effects will be, and we'll have to keep monitoring that. But that's kind of what we do always when we're doing monetary policy. We, we always sort of think about, we take an action, then we look at the data. We're very data dependent. Um, we're very, you know, looking at the current economy and then, the, you know, what's on the horizon for the outlook. And then we take into account the risk around that outlook, and then we recalibrate our policy. And I, that we're going to do that this time, I'm sure. President Mester, just to get some more clarity on that, I think this is important. Do you see balance sheet reduction as something that runs passively in the background alongside decisions you make separately on rate hikes? Or is it something that supports the rate hike effort? Mike and I are trying to consider, trying to work out whether balance sheet reduction reduces the need for further rate hikes at some point as well. How do you think about that dynamic? Is it something that runs off in the background passively or something that you think about together alongside interest rate hikes? Well, I, I'm going to answer your question in a way you're not going to like both, right? I mean, I, my kind of way I think about it is I'd like to sort of set sort of a path for the balance sheet, you know, communicate that in advance to the markets. That will, you know, reduce accommodation, and then we'll use our policy tool, the Fed funds rate, as our active tool. But, you know, sometimes we have to recalibrate. As you saw, we did that in November and then the December meeting. We started with you know, uh, a tapering of the asset purchase program we announced in November, and then in December, the committee sped that up. And, and that may have to happen over this period as we calibrate. But in general, you know, my approach would be come up with what we think is the right plan for that balance sheet, have that happening, and then use the policy tool as our main tool of, of uh, monetary policy. A couple of times in this conversation already, you've used that phrase, reduce accommodation. When we heard from Bill Dudley yesterday, he talked about the fantasy land of dovish forecasts at the Federal Reserve. And I just wonder, do we need restrictive policy at the Federal Reserve? Do we need to get away from talking about reducing accommodation and talk about outright having a restrictive policy stance? 
So I don't think we need to do that at this point. I think that that's got to be on the table of, you know, where is the end, end point? But, you know, when we do our SEPs, it's three years away. And as we've seen, you know, the economy can change in ways um, that are very unexpected. So again, at this point, I think it's really important that we take actions to bring inflation down, given the environment, and, you know, a lot of times people think, oh, you're either for maximum employment or for, you know, lowering inflation. And I don't see them as opposing one another. Well, President Mester, forgive me Very for jumping in. How do you reduce inflation without a restrictive policy starts without tighter financial conditions? How does that work? Right. Because the markets are reacting. Right. So we've already seen some tightening in financial conditions in the market. And so, you know, I think what we have to do is we have to bring our policy rate in line with the economy and where we want it the inflation rates to go. And we're going to have to take actions to do that. So right now, if you look at long-term inflation expectations, you may take some comfort in the fact that they're basically maybe a little elevated, but around our 2% goal. I don't take that much comfort in it because that's based on, you know, the Fed taking appropriate action. So it's incumbent upon us to take those actions. And I think we're in a good place to do that now. Well, you've said that we need to see how the economy develops before you know what you're going to have to do in total. But the pessimistic view expressed by a lot of people, you know who they are, is that you've waited too long. You're behind the curve. You're going to have to move too far too fast. And uh, as the phrase goes, you'll break something, maybe send the economy into recession. How do you reassure people that won't happen, given that the Fed's track record in this area isn't very good? Well, I don't know whether the track record is that bad. I mean, I think that the last cycle proved that we kind of navigated that pretty well. And that we had a very, very long expansion, right? A historically long expansion. So this is a pandemic environment, new things. We're going to look at the data. We're going to make sure we're focused on meeting both of our goals and maximum employment and inflation. It's, it seems clear to me now that inflation is too high um, and labor markets are strong and we need to take action. And as the economy moves, we will take appropriate action to make sure that we're doing what we can to keep the economy on a positive trajectory. And that means taking actions to bring inflation down without right, harming the positive trajectory of the economy. And that's going to be a challenge. There's no doubt about it. That will be a challenge for us. But that's what we do. That's what we're, we're charged to do. And that's what we'll be doing. Let me shift gears a little bit and anticipate a question from Elizabeth Warren, uh, Massachusetts Senator, to the Fed Chairman Jay Powell today. Uh, we've seen two Fed Bank presidents resign. We're now seeing the Vice Chairman resign early. Does the Fed have an ethics problem? I do not believe we have an ethics problem. I think what happened was there was illumination on things that uh, gave an appearance issue, right? They were technically correct in terms of the rules, but it was the appearance issue. Um, the chair and the Fed are taking actions to strengthen the rules upon which we have to abide. And I think that is addressing the situation. I do not believe there's an ethics issue at the Federal Reserve. President Mester, final question from us. Every cycle for the past few cycles, the Fed funds rate has peaked at a lower level. Do you think the dynamics are now in place with this economy that give you reason to think that might not be the case this time? Well, I mean, partly that's what we've just been talking about is how far do we need to go in order to recalorate policy to meet our two mandated goals. But I also want to point out that the factors that held down inflation 
over the last cycle, globalization, technological change, demographics, they're probably still in play in the economy. It's just that they've been swamped by the supply chain issues, the high accommodation that's in the markets right now, um, labor market issues that keep people out of the labor market. So all of those things, right, are now front and center. Eventually, we'll probably get back to a low interest rate environment. Loretta Mester, the Cleveland Fed president, thank you very much for being with Mike McKee and myself this morning. What we really need is someone who knows negative Celsius. And like you get the Rolodex out and there's only one name in surveillance land, and that's David Harrow, Packers fan. And David, in 2008, Giants-Packers, you were there and it was a negative 31 Celsius wind chill. How cold was that game? Well, it was pretty cold and, you know, you got to cover everything up and make sure that as you're drinking beer that you had in your face mask, you, you needed a little thing so you could drink your beer because yeah, that beer, of course, keeps you warm. You need beer. And, and you How do you take day, notes? <laughs> and you have to start the day with a bratwurst because that, that is your fuel. So the beer key is, the, is the antifreeze and the fuel is the bratwurst. Pro und semf. Thank you for that analysis from Balmy, Chicago, uh, this morning. David Harrow, on international investment, the fuel is a weaker dollar. Are you going to get international equity performance singularly because you need a weak dollar? You need a weak dollar to make it work. No, it's, it's certainly been a headwind, by the way. A strong dollar has been a definite headwind over the better part of the decade, really. And now that the dollar seems to have peaked, uh, perhaps that we could get some reversal of this. But that's just one of the factors that has impacted international returns has been the strength of the dollar. It has been a headwind. I expect that it will probably be a tailwind. But I think more importantly, areas like Europe coming out of the pandemic, uh, ending the negative real interest rate, the negative interest rate experiment uh, will be even bigger drivers, especially given the valuation differentials between say, European equities in the rest of the world. So, David, let's push that forward into your call on European equities, especially as we get a headline this morning that the World Health Organization is saying the Omicron may infect more than half of all Europeans within the next couple of weeks based on how much uh, the transmission rates are increasing. Is your view that Europe will actually emerge from this more quickly, will actually have a lower interest rate uh, policy for longer, and will actually allow equities to outperform in a way that most people are not expecting? Yeah, I think what will happen is this uh, Omicron rolls through the world and it kind of seemed to have triggered first in, in, in Europe compared to the U.S. Uh, and as, as you know, the Spanish prime minister said today, we got to stop, stop looking at this as a pandemic and start just learning to deal with this with the flu. And eventually the rest of the world will get this message. I, it looks like China is going to be the last one to get this message. But what will happen is, is they reopen the economy. And you've, you finally are getting this uh, synchronized reopening. This will be a, a major boost to the European economy, as it will be to the global economy. And European businesses really have a heavy export component to them. And so as the global economy reopens, I think you will expect to see the European economy is almost a warrant on global economic growth because of the heavy export influence it has on their economy. And in the meantime, you have had these 
negative interest rates almost since post the financial crisis. I do believe this will be coming to an end as well as the global financial system is fully capitalized. Uh, you know, the reserves that have been built up over the decade can now, the money earned can now be used to invest, to grow, to give to owners. Um, so I, I do believe that it's going to be a better environment, that the tailwinds hurting investors in Europe and outside the United States, or the headwinds hurting them, will yeah. become tailwinds. So David, is the way to get uh, the most out of that call to go into European banks? I think that's one way. That is one way. I think this is has been for a long time in times and it kid me because we've been stubbornly attached to these. Why? Because the price is low. And even despite those macro headwinds, they've been able to grow earnings. Now, albeit at a slow rate, but you know, you have been able to see acceptable business performance despite the very poor macro conditions. Now these macro conditions are changing. And so I believe you'll see even a faster buildup of capital instead of that capital having to stay on the balance sheet because of reserve requirements, they're right. going to be able to use that capital. So you're going to see an increase in the velocity of money. And this is exactly why the central banks can't sit right. on their hands. David, we got to turn to European banking. It has been a horrific 2021 for management, all sorts of stories. You've actually been knee deep in this and very visible and I'm sure at times invisible as well. Is European banking management becoming more Anglo-American where they will really adapt to shareholder pressure? You know, I was just talking to your, your very good uh, reporter and who covers this, uh, Jan Heinrich Forster, by the way. And he, you know, I think it's improved greatly. It has, if you look, I look across our holdings uh, in Italy and Tessa Sao Paulo and France, BNP. I mean, two of the best banking CEOs, I would say, in the world and, uh, and, and yeah. leading those two organizations. Credit Suisse, of course, which has struggled. Really, really struggle. Oh, come on, David. David, I got to cut you off. Let's get to the chase. David Harrow, does Credit Suisse have to be put out of its misery? No, what ha has to happen at Credit Suisse is they have to allow change to happen via the new chairman, um, Antonio Ortiz Osario. If he is very capable, he stabilized and, and repaired Lloyd's, he's the exact answer to their problems. Now, to be honest, I think this is their this is last chance you. He is the answer to their problems. You need organization, you need discipline, you need a culture of risk control. These are so, exactly what he brings to the table. David, and I think that if he's not allowed to do this and if they pick on him over this quarantine stuff, then you then it should probably be broken up. So, as an investor, how much time are you giving them? Well, you're being paid to wait in essence because the price of the business is 50 or 60% of book value. When if run properly, it should be double or triple that. So we will be patient as long as we're seeing progress. And then if, if it becomes unfixable, as Tom you know, has suggested, um, you know, by the way, many parts of the business are operating just fine. And unfortunately, those many parts of the business, Ozzy Grubel said this, you know, it's really simple. Banks make money, uh, but the, the object is to keep it after you make it. And in Credit Suisse's case, 
they didn't or have not been able to keep all of what they've made because of poor risk control and poor legal and compliance, et cetera, et cetera. So if you can fix these things, all that money that has been made in the past that has been frittered away to fines and to losses will become gains for the shareholders. And I think this is what's important is, you know, the engine has been producing income. It's been coming in the front door, unfortunately, because of sour leadership and management. And I think, you know, it's been no secret. I think the, the, the past chairman of the business who's been there over a decade presided over all these legal incidents and all these uh, market infractions. Now that you have proper top leadership at the top of the organization, I believe that this, this, this income that is generated can be captured. David, you mentioned a word there, unfixable. What does unfixable look like? How do you know it when you see it? When you continue to see losses and infractions and a a lack of executional excellence and a lack of discipline. You need discipline, especially in financial services where you have, in many cases, translucent or opaque assets. And you need to be able to control and manage risk. You don't completely eliminate risk. You have to look at risk reward. You have to price risk properly and balance it properly in order for a financial institution to be successful. And unfortunately, this is what credit suits. Is- <clears throat> Yeah, David, we don't care. What we want to know, Aaron Rodgers, I mean, he's got a left tackle back, the gentleman from Colorado and Boulder, David Bakhtiari. Tell me the importance of the line for Aaron Rodgers in that left tackle. Well, Bakhtiari, of course, is critical. He's probably one of the best tackles in the league. And if you give more, if you give more time to Aaron Rodgers, you know, that's like giving a sharpshooter, you know, yeah. <laughs> you, you, he becomes even deadlier. He becomes even deadlier. It's unbelievable. Thank you. John, I misspelled Aaron Rodgers. I'm going to go so much to the Packers timeout (laughs) chair. I'm never going to be invited in Wisconsin again. David, thank you. David David, you. of Harris Associates. Given how cold some of those games are, Tom. (laughs) Was that good enough, John, for you? Minus 31 degrees wind chill. (laughs) Give me a break. Right now, Brent Schutte gets us started here. we got a really eventful hour for you on radio and television with Northwestern Mutual, where short-term is five years. Brent, forget about short-term is five years. Let's bring it in big time to a three-year perspective. What is the three-year perspective given the cacophony right now? I think in the near term, I actually think the market has legs to go higher. Now, I know we're going through this painful kind of rotation, which has always been a question of ours. Can you actually deflate some of the more excessive parts of the markets without causing that to leak into the broader market? And so far, despite all that commentary, you have seen value stocks hold up well. You've seen hopes, dreams, themes, and memes. Some of those things that didn't make sense that were bid up on excessive monetary policy, they've deflated more than 50%. I think you continue to see that throughout the year. I think hopefully we get better news on COVID. I think inflation does pull back as we shift more from goods buying to services buying. Uh, And then I think that allows the Fed to be just a bit less aggressive than market is pricing against an economic backdrop that is still strong. And I think the first half is a pretty good part of the year. So monetary policy right now, Brent, and just to jump in because this is important, you think this is a problem for pockets of the market, not the overall market, at least in the front half? 
Yeah, and, and that was mentioned by Tom in the opening when he talked about a nuanced market. I mean, you're seeing parts of the market that are actually doing okay the last few weeks. You've seen value stocks hold up quite well. Look, you've had an abnormal economy. The word economic adaptation has occurred. We had that forecast for a while. That has led to market abnormalities. Hopes, dreams, themes, and memes are one, but then you also have growth stocks trading at record PEs relative to value stocks. You have large caps trading at record PEs relative to small caps. And so we think that as the economy normalizes, which we think we're continuing to do, the market will have to normalize. And that means that part of the market that hasn't done as well, uh, that is quite frankly cheap, will do better as real interest rates move higher. Take me to the second half then. I worry more then because at the second half of the year, we could be out of economic slack or moving towards that. Think about it this way. At the end of 2019, we had a pretty tight labor market. Between now and the end of the year, we could be back to where we were in 2019 at the end of, uh, at the end of that time period, a later economic cycle market where we're out of labor market slack. And then the question becomes, becomes can productivity keep up? We only have around 4 million more people to hire before we're back, all else being equal, to where we were in 2019. And at 200 to 400,000 per month, that means 10 to 20 months before the labor market could potentially be tight. And that's when you might have more real inflation, not the one that you're having right now, which is based upon COVID and some of those abnormalities. Brent, you talk about the first half and the second half and a bifurcated nature between the two halves. And you're not alone. A lot of people have said the same thing. How do you arrange a strategy where you have the flexibility to rejigger at a time when everybody is doing the same thing in response to the same inputs and liquidity is being drained from the system? Yeah, I mean, we've been overweight more of the value of the small, the cheaper parts of the market for some time. And we're going to continue to be overweight those parts of the market probably to the middle half of the year. And then we start looking and thinking about, do we want to bring our equity ratio down just a bit to reflect the fact that a lot of the easy money has been made, the labor market may be tight then, uh, and the output gap, which is an important concept, may be closed. Um, I still think the economy has legs into 2023 because I do think productivity is kind of the unsung story that will become uh, kind of the, the more sung story towards the second half of the year. And that keeps us going in 2023, 2024. But certainly the risks are rising. Brent, you said that you reduce uh, <clears throat> equity exposure and then go into what? Are bonds the place to go? Do you go into Bitcoin? Uh, no, not Bitcoin. I, I said hopes, dreams, themes and memes, and I would extend that to crypto um, just as a kind of a framework. Um, you know, that's a good question. And, and I guess we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. I, I think you're going to see yields normalize a bit more in the coming months, which could provide a more of an opportunity in the bond market for a real return at some point. Uh, but for right now, we are still overweight equities relative to fixed income, and we'll play that day by day. Brent, Brent final question. Can I call negative nine Celsius cold? Is that cold enough yes. for you? It's cold enough for me, and it's cold <laughs> enough here in Milwaukee, although I'm sitting in my basement, so it's rather warm down here. But I think the temperature is around zero outside. Zero Fahrenheit. Zero Fahrenheit. That's all I do math on, Fahrenheit. Brent, yeah, thank John, you, sir. Brent Shuddy of Northwestern Mutual. I'm just not familiar with Fahrenheit, Tom. I asked right. Brent, Tom, because every time I say it's freezing, you tell me this is nothing. It is freezing there. in New York. Today, we're, on, you know, we're not on the edge of Buffalo today it's, or it's International nine, Falls, Tom. but you know, Amretta Sen is going to walk off the stage here if we don't get to her. Amretta Sen joins us right now, Director of Research in Energy Aspects, and she is wonderful on the microeconomics. It gets you to $120 a barrel on Brent crude or maybe $60 a barrel on Brent crude. Amretta Sen, to me, there's never been a greater time out of the GDP markdown by Goldman Sachs on China. The mystery of oil demand, to me right now, off the chart. Do you have a clue what oil demand is going to be this year? 
Yeah, we think it is going to continue to rise and uh, rise by about close to 3 million barrels per day. It's not going to be quite there, but yeah, close to that. China actually isn't going to be the biggest driver of growth uh, because, you know, you've obviously still got zero COVID policy there. We don't necessarily think they're going to lift that anytime soon, but it is going to be the rest of Asia. Most of Asia hasn't actually had uh, much of a summer driving season as we've seen in the West. Uh, last year, a lot of parts of Asia were still in lockdown or at least under some form of mobility restrictions. So you're going to see, you are already seeing a lot of strong demand growth numbers coming out of there. Of course, now cases are rising everywhere in, in the East. Uh, but once we are through this period, uh, the summer should be very, very strong. Amrita, what do you make of this Francisco Blanche of Bank of America call for $100 or plus uh, oil prices by the second quarter? I mean, our price forecast, which has been like, you know, consistent for a few years now, uh, we've been calling for $114 for next year. That's an annual average. So of course, it goes well above 120 next year. We don't necessarily see that this year, even though we are saying and our, our models are showing that that uh, inventories globally are not just at a record le low levels um, this summer. They're going to fall down to those levels, uh, but they are going to be at levels we've really never seen, especially uh, on a global basis, uh, but especially in, in uh, non-OECD countries. So yes, there are risks that prices go higher. I mean, our annual average for this year is 85. But the worry, of course, in the near term still is COVID. Demand is still hamstrung. OPEC still has barrels to give. So for us, the real spike in oil price story remains second half, like really end of this year into next year. The caveat to that is these supply outages. We've seen so many of them, Ecuador, Libya, Nigeria, Kazakhstan recently. If these keep mounting, of course, you can get to $100 earlier. But without those, it'll still be end of the year into next year. How much are we underestimating the higher cost to actually refine some of the oil that's going to be coming online, especially in light of some of the other material inflation that we've seen around the world? It's a great question and, you know, something we've been accounting for in our uh, balances uh, to, to Tom's point in terms of the economics of it, it becomes very important. We are looking at cost inflation of at least 10 to 15 percent across the upstream industry. And that just means that, again, you need a higher price just for these producers to break even because they need that much more in, in terms of uh, their equipment uh, and just for sustaining their production. So that's a minimum 10 to 15 percent. In some areas we're hearing about 20% inflation uh, when it comes to oil services. Amrita, just finally, how strong is our understanding of the relationship between, say, balance sheet reduction and crude prices, interest rate hikes and crude prices? The latter we have a ton of experience with, the former not so much. Oh, absolutely. And I think this is going to be, again, if you talk about wild cards or, you know, just uh, events outside of the core fundamentals of oil impacting uh, crude this year, it's going to be hugely important. Um, generally speaking, if we do enter a period of tightening monetary policy um, or even fiscal policy for that matter, we are going to be in a period of lower growth and by definition, lower oil prices. But if you that is accompanied with inflation, <coughs> Oil tends to do perform very well in a high inflationary period. So that's your juxtaposition with that theory. This is really tough. That's the bottom line. I'm Rita Sen. Thank you. Of Energy Aspects. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations 
and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.